This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week this season, we'll bring you fresh content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations, and our main goal in everything we do, including this podcast, is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. I'm excited to let you know that we are currently offering a completely online national disciple-making forum. It's April 29th and 30th of this year, just a little bit away, and you can register for this at discipleship.org. You can do this today. Today's episode features Faith International University's track from the National Disciple-Making Forum called the Robert E. Coleman School of Discipleship. So before we get into the featured audio for this track, we wanted you to know about a free resource that's closely associated with this content. It's an ebook called Revisiting the Master Plan of Evangelism. You can download this free ebook at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Now for today's episode called The Master Plan, What It Is and What It Isn't, Part 1, featuring Faith International University's Scotty Kessler. Okay, let's begin. My name is Scotty Kessler. Uh, the name of this particular breakout is called Discipling Biblically the Master Plan Way. That's a reference to a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which you may or may not have heard of, uh, written by a guy named Dr. Robert Coleman. I'll encourage you to uh, pick that up if you haven't. If anything that is shared here today interests you at all, uh, that book is kind of a, a benchmark book. Uh, frankly, uh, well, I'll wait till I talk about the books later. But that's where the title came from. And also part of the breakout session is what, what it is and what it isn't. Uh, that's kind of a, just a little play on words. We, we do want to articulate is what our view of discipleship is, as you're getting lots of opportunities from a lot of different perspectives. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, these things are like a, a smorgasbord. You don't need everything or you're going to get sick, right? So you pick and choose what you like or what you're inclined to or um, what what seems to fit your rhythm. And, and uh, I certainly uh, feel the same way about that. So I'm here also at the Smorgasbord taking notes and attending the sessions. I have some folks like Robbie Gallaty that I've known a little bit, and so I enjoy coming to hear how he's uh, repackaging or rearticulating the vision of discipleship and discipling biblically. So I uh, uh, I just want you to understand this is our conviction Everybody parents differently. There's certain core values, but everybody parents different. And so everybody spiritually parents different. And we should celebrate our uniquenesses, celebrate our different uh, specificities. Um, and it's not a matter of right or wrong. They're just different. And so I feel entirely comfortable sharing our convictions. Well, you understand, even though I'm dogmatic for, for us, as I hope you are in your parenting of your children, if you're a parent, uh, you also give grace to other people that parent differently. And in the same way, I have strong convictions, but it doesn't mean it's for you or that you need to look at it this way. It's just my impression, my experience, what I've learned from my spiritual fathers and mothers and such such as that. This is actually a, a two-session deal, meaning uh, this is not uh, the 9 o'clock and the 10.15 are part one and part two. Don't feel obligated to stay with two. If you want to, that'd be great. Uh, it's going to be in a progression, so you'll leave at halftime. If you do not attend the second one, that's uh, that's just the way they wanted it to happen. 
today. So they didn't want two of the same. They wanted it in a progression. So I'm sharing it that way. My only sadness is that if you're planning on going out at 10.15 is that you wouldn't see the whole enchilada. But that's something you have to decide. And, and certainly I've, I understand and feel comfortable because I would have had a plan to go to something different at 10.15 if I was you also. Just a little info. I live in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I have a wife. Uh, I was single till I was uh, 48. I married a widow. And uh, she had, she was 13 years younger than I. She had boys at the time, two of them, obviously now mine. They were seven and 10. They're now 21 and 24. And then we have, we got, had a six year old daughter uh, between us. So I have one son who's at the Kennecuck Institute for those who are aware of the uh, Kennecuck camps for a gap year in Branson, Missouri. Other one is uh, attending and playing football at uh, Southern Nazarene University in Oklahoma City. And then we have a first grader. And we moved from the Northwest to Omaha. Uh, just this summer. I am a historically a football coach by trade. So college football coaching is my vocational history. I was, uh, I retired from it, so to speak, in 2004 due to some family issues, my parents' health. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was introduced to a young widow and I got married and that put me on a different track. I was only on, uh, also on staff at a church in Tacoma, Washington for seven years as the uh, associate pastor of prayer and discipleship. So um, that's kind of my vocational track. So I kind of speak like a coach. If you feel kind of coachy, that's where that comes from. I'm not more the pastoralish guy. I'm more the coachy guy. And and uh, you may feel that a little bit as I speak. Uh, format is we're going to go 30 minutes and then I'm going to I'm going to digress. I'm going to space and make a statement that that is. Uh, that to me is integrated with discipleship, but separate of it as a doctrinal position. I'm, it's, I'm going to speak about prayer, uh, prayer very briefly, uh, but firmly, just my opinion about the integration of uh, prayer and discipleship and its criticalness. At 50 minutes, I'm going to give five minutes for uh, Brent. He's a guy I met in a group like this last year, uh, a pastor, associate pastor at a church in Myrtle Beach, and just describe... Uh, the ongoing relationships and collaboration that can happen out of things like this, uh, because we're now very good friends, and I just spent a few days with this church community about a month ago, and piggybacked all the stuff we're going to talk about today. So let's pray to begin. Uh, Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here. Yeah. Yeah. We dedicate this time to you. Uh, you know, you, you uh, are clear that you handpicked 12 guys that were your plan to reach the world. Uh, it was a unique plan. It was, a, it was the master's plan. It was, it, was, it was victorious from the creation. And uh, I want to uh, handle accurately principles as best I can. I ask in Jesus' name that you'll speak through me whatever you wish. Lord, I submit right now to your leadership in this hour, pray for the folks that are here, don't know their names or stories, uh, but they're here for some purpose and reason, and whatever that might be, God, I pray that you would move me to communicate in such a way that it would meet the need, the desire of why they'd even come to this, uh, Lord. So we submit to you together, open ears and eyes, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, uh, we are a human voice box, frail, flawed. Nonetheless, we will give it our best shot. And uh, we fear your holy name and ask you to lead in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to uh, paint a 
picture today, a bunch of pictures really, and it's not the full expression of, uh, of what we call discipling biblically, but it'll give you a picture. <clears throat> we'll hit some key points if you want a further conversation, both here or after here, that's always on the table and an option. But I, I want to go on record, and I, I know you know this already, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I'm certainly not an expert. I'm just a guy. And uh, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, I was born again when I was four. I think it was a legitimate conversion. Just uh, I, I just believe it that I remember the day my mother asked me to know him, and I said yes, and I still can see her as, as I'm looking at Brent right here. So I think something happened transformationally. Uh, though we are chosen from the foundation, there's a point in time in which something happens, and for me that was at four. So I've tried to walk with God as best I can for 58 years. I'm now 62. My first 21, uh, he was um, uh, Savior, and then from 21-ish on, he became Lord, and that's a critical place to go. Uh, but for me, they were in segments, and that's uh, just part of my story. Dr. Coleman, when he speaks, uh, I'm going to refer to him regularly because he's kind of a patriarch in the movement in the world of discipleship. So these conferences, uh, they would, and you'll find he'll be here, I think, at uh, 1230 for the last session. He's 92. He's uh, retired. Uh, he's, he's not retired from the kingdom. He's still discipling as a 92-year-old. But He's retired from his profession, which was being a seminary prophet in a number of places. And some of his disciples are going to drive him down, and he'll be part of the closing session. And they may ask him to pray a blessing on the group. So if you wonder why this old guy's up there, it's because he's kind of recognized worldwide, worldwide as, as the person who articulated the master's plan of what Jesus did with the Twelve in discipleship. Uh, uh, no one has done it better. Let's put it that way. I don't, uh, he would be recognized by Bill Bright, uh, deceased founder of Campus Crusade, Luis Palau, the Spanish Billy Graham. There's a whole segment of people that would say that, that his articulation of the master's plan of, of discipling um, and the principles from the book um, hit it on the head in, in, in a way more and different than others have. So it's a recognized entity, and that's why they honor him here by uh, using his uh, name, and they'll bring him up, and he'll, if you haven't been here before, he'll he'll maybe be interviewed at minimum. He'll probably pray for the group with a fatherly blessing of somebody recognized as a patriarch. I say that to say, when he speaks, he'll say something like this, and in honoring him, my spiritual father, I'll say it also. You know, I really don't amount to much, but I do I do serve a great Savior. And in that light, I'm attempting to communicate with you also. So, discipling biblically, the master plan way. I'm going to talk about the what and the why. Uh, I would talk about the how normally. I reckon we're going to not even come close to being on time on that, and that would be something if you wanted to follow up further, you could. The what of discipleship, let's begin with some definitions. I'm going to spend very little time here simply because you're here for this reason. I presume most of you have a frame of reference. But a disciple is a learner or a follower of Jesus, obviously. Uh, in, in the Greek, my understanding is it's kind of a view of being like an apprentice. So it's an apprentice of the master. Discipleship is the application of, the, of making disciples. Evangelism is proclamation of the gospel the good news of Jesus, we see discipleship and evangelism as from the same root. Uh, we would not see them in any way separated any more than you would separate a wedding, a day from a marriage, or a birth from a life. Uh, 
Uh, unfortunately, they're spoken about as if they're separate entities, but when you pull them apart, uh, you lose the power, you lose the distinctiveness. We would say uh, that you um, that it's not biblical. It's not disobedient to view them separately, but it's not entirely biblical, and you'll miss the congruency of the two of them. Hopefully, I'll be able to share that a bit. Uh, discipleship and evangelism, they're not something you do, they're someone you are. They're who you are. Uh, you are an evangelist and you are a discipler, a disciple maker. This is the, the intention from the very beginning. <clears throat> Excuse me. It being, we say this, being precedes doing. Being. You've got to walk with God before you can walk with people if you're going to walk with people well. And so the great commandment, precedes, love God, love people, precedes the Great Commission. Being precedes doing. Otherwise, you're going to do ministry, and it's not going to be from the heart. It's going to be from the head. It's going to be from a lot of things not motivated by love, not compelled, as Paul said, compelled by love, and that's going to be problematic. It's going to be problematic if it's not who you are, but something you do. It's a lifestyle, we would say. We call it the Great Commission Lifestyle. The Great Commission, not simply being evangelism, but tied to discipleship as one. It's the marriage of evangelism, discipleship, the Great Commission lifestyle. That would be our understanding. That would be our articulation. So backtrack a bit. Question, what does it mean to be a disciple? It, not, it doesn't simply mean to be a follower, a learner. It means to make disciples. To be a disciple is to make disciples. We've separated them and see somebody can be a disciple who doesn't make disciples. But his, his commandment as he was leaving the planet was go make disciples. It was, it was the one thing, you know, it'd be like your dad's leaving the house for, on vacation for a while and, and, and you're there and you're, you know, first time you've ever been at the house and he just, one last thing, one last thing. Just don't forget this thing and make sure you do it. And of course, we see it as an option. It's the great option. It's not the great commission and that's unfortunate. To follow Jesus is not simply be to, to be a learner. It's to follow him in discipling others. He said, go and do likewise. Now, you can do discipleship or you can be a disciple maker. And those are critical distinctions. When we're connected to the vine vertically through the word of God and prayer, then horizontally in the natural world, in this planet, we're going to bear fruit. That's the John 15 deal. If you're connected to the vine, you'll bear fruit. And bearing fruit was equated with making disciples. It was equated with discipleship. So from the beginning, they were together. Uh, Two-sided coin. This is, you can't separate the wedding day from the marriage, right? The wedding date is part of the marriage. You can't have a marriage without having a day that you got married. But the wedding date without the marriage, is, is, it, it isn't even conceivable. Is that correct? And if you have a phenomenal wedding day and you have a bad marriage, that's not a good thing. That's not a win. Uh, the wedding day is evangelism. That's the day you're born again. And after you're born again, you're on a track immediately of learning, of discipleship. We separate the wedding day from the marriage as if that was even possible. We emphasize the wedding day just like people in America emphasize their wedding day. They get counseling. They spend a bunch of money. They may get counseling, frankly. They may not. They spend a lot of money. There's incredible emphasis on the wedding day which is a window of time in, in a speck along the linear track. The, the marriage is what matters. I'd rather have a great marriage and a bad wedding day than a phenomenal wedding day and the marriage to blow up because there's a generational impact on the brokenness of the family line from a marriage that isn't 
good, whatever that is. Does that make sense? And so if your evangelism is you're great at it, but you don't, you don't care or have intention or a plan for the discipling of those that are converted, that'd be like somebody who likes to birth babies but is disinterested in parent. We look on this planet on somebody who has uh, seven kids with five different women with disdain. In fact, the, the law has to come and get involved so that the kids are protected at some minimal level. But in the church, after somebody's evangelized, we pay at best cursory notice to their walk. We give them a book. We invite them to a small group. Maybe we invite them back to church. If they're not there in two or three weeks, we may not even notice, depending on the size of our church or our shepherd's heart. It's insanity that we treat in the body actual birthed people who may not stay in the game. We'll get to the parable of seeds in the morning. Almost disdainfully, we exalt the fact that they were saved, had a born-again moment, and may even be baptized, but our tracking system or concern or plan for their life in God is at best haphazard, which in the world you could go to jail for, but in the body we exalt. That's how screwed up it is terms of the body of Christ and how we view the follow-up, the mechanism, the supervision, the responsibility of spiritually parenting those who convert. A birth without a life. Everybody loves the birthday. They, they honor it. They send out notices. They make a big deal of it. They recognize it every year. If you have a great birthday, and your life, if, if you abuse people, you destroy lives, you're broken and you break people, you don't go back and honor that birthday and break out the pictures and show it at the family deals when he's destroyed or she's destroyed the family. Is that right? The birthday has to happen. There has to be a birth for there to be a life. But if the birth goes well, which is a point in time, and the life is destructive, that's a bad deal. And in the same way in the body, if we see the moment of conversion to be the big deal, and don't have a plan for the caring of, in particular in the early years, which are years of a new believer, that would be a bad plan and insanity. And yet that is where I would observe, as a longtime person in the church, that is where we're at as, as a kingdom, unfortunately. Which is why we get uh, what we deserve, but not what we want, in terms of the maturation of those who confess his name. If you have evangelism, you may not have any discipleship. But if you have discipleship, you will have evangelism. That is not to say discipleship is more important than evangelism. It is to say if you separate the true, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well for the person, for the community, for the kingdom. The chances greatly decrease that there'll be anything positive and may in fact be things that are uh, in incredibly destructive. Both are commandments, evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is also a gift. Discipleship is not a gift. We view it as somebody who disciples like he's a special guy or gal, like he's unique, like he has a unique calling. All he's doing is being obedient at a minimal level. You, everybody is responsible to evangelize, but some have been given supernatural gifts for it. Everybody is responsible to disciple, and everybody has everything they need to do so according to 2 Peter, which says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, of which discipleship is part and parcel of that. 
And yet we act as if it's for those. It's, it's almost like we also treat prayer that way, as if those who are intercessors have a special calling when he commanded us all to be prayers and to intercede. We, we have flipped it into a professional's thing, like there's a lady and a professional, or there's the anointed to do, and then there's the rest of us, and we've been deceived. And the fruit of that deception is broken lives, people who've fallen away. Uh, the destruction is uh, incalculable, frankly. Well, it will be calculated at the end. It's incalculable to the naked eye. Here's a couple. Uh, uh, I want to talk about the parable of the seeds, and I also want to talk about something I call the four knuckles. Now, the four knuckles is just my my mechanism for teaching. There's nothing special about knuckles, and, and there are four, and I just use it as a visual. So let me do so right now. Uh, the four knuckles, it just teaches some principles. The first knuckle, this is the stages of somebody's walk with God. The first knuckle is they have to be born again. You must be born again, John 3, 3. So since we're talking about evangelism is for the unconverted, and once you're converted, discipleship plays. So there's only two kind of people, the lost and the saved. And in the lost, they're in the category of evangelism, and the saved, they're in the category of discipleship. So if you're born again, you, you move from the line, from evangelism to discipleship, you must be born again. And that's necessary. You must be born again. The second one is the guy, gal, when I say guy, please, if I don't all the time do the male-female deal, understand mankind is what I'm talking about. The person, the person who says, I want to know God, I want to know him bad. It's, it's one thing to be born again. And there's another thing to want to know them, where it's, there's a hard connection. I want to know him bad, I want to know him, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I don't want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings too much, but I, I want to know the power of the resurrection, and I want to have fruit, and I want to feel your presence, and I want to feel, and I want to know, right? Is that a fair point? Those are two different places. And you have to go from one to the other before you can get to the other knuckles or the other stages. The problem with stage number two is it's still about who? It's still about you. It's still about us. It's I want to know him because I like it, because it makes me feel good. Because there, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a place to go. But at some level, it's self-absorbed because there's no thought at all at that point or rare that it's not about you. The third knuckle is, oops, it's not about me. It's about others. And most people go back and forth like a ping pong ball. The process of working out their salvation in fear and trembling is going like a ping pong ball. Is oop, I know I should be serving. I know I should be loving. I, well, you really, you signed it, your death warrant when you converted. You didn't know that if it wasn't articulated clearly. If when they presented the gospel, it acted like something, just come on in. But, but you're crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and said, go and do likewise. To convert is to sign your death warrant in terms of yourself. Not my will, but your will be done is the, is the, uh, 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 the, it's, golly, I'm thinking of it. It's the currency of the kingdom. The currency in the kingdom is you die to yourself for the sake of the king in the kingdom. And this is the, minimum expectation of a Jesus confessor. It's not for the professionals or those who are serious. This is for everyone. And so we have to go, we have to be born again, and then we move to a point of salvation, and then we have to move to a point of lordship. That may happen simultaneously, or like in my story, it may happen played out over time because of my ignorance, because of my unbelief, because I wasn't discipled or mentored, which most people aren't, right? 
They're just kind of generally, they go to a place, they throw out food usually on a Sunday. The people who want to eat, eat more, depending on the good food, how good a food it is. It may not be good food, how hungry they are, how hungry they want to be, how much they want to eat. All that is, all that is a mosh pit, right? And so we move from this place of wanting to know him to wanting to know him more to realizing it's not about us. It's about others. Now we can learn that by accident going to a building every week, or we can learn it much more deeply and wiser if we walk with somebody who actually has walked through that. It's hard to go someplace you've never been and get there in an appropriate amount of time in an appropriate way. Does that make sense? But if somebody takes you there, chances increase. And if they really know how to go there, then the chances increase more that you'll go there also. This is metaphors for discipleship. <clears throat> so third knuckle is, oops, it's not about me, it's about others. And as I said, we, we pop back and forth between our self-absorbed, I want a neat house, I want a neat... It's really, the second guy is on this planet. He's not thinking eternity is his home. He's not thinking this is a place that he's checked in and out of. He's thinking about this life is this planet, and then I go to heaven. But the thought of heaven doesn't impact their walk, really at all. Fundamentally, it's about this planet. But... When they transition, and this is usually happens by the, in, in the grace and mercy of God, to the fourth knuckle was life is mission. The Great Commission lifestyle. The Great Commission lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship is, is the fruit of somebody who is at the fourth knuckle. It's the revelation. This is not in my home. I'm a stranger here. I'm a stra- this is about eternity. Life on this planet is going to be, in America, at least 75 plus or minus years maximally. And then you're somewhere for 500 million. Now, it's not 500 million. It's more than that. But I can't wrap my arm around anything more than that. So I just say, we got, you know, we got 75-ish here and we have 500 million a year. It'd be insanity to put your money in a bank at 0.00001% when you have the option to put it in where it's 84% or 1,500%. If you had the same amount of investment and you could put it in two different banks, why would you knowingly put it in 0.00001% when you could put it into 15,000%? It's insanity. If you're at the fourth knuckle, looking back at this planet is much different than if you're at the second knuckle looking forward to this life because this is not our home. And unless you have a vision of that, discipleship is going to be what you do and not who you are because it's tied to this planet instead of tied to eternal fruit, which is God's will for all of us. Critical distinctions. To move people to understand the marriage of evangelism and discipleship as a lifestyle and not a program, not something you do, not the church's evangelism. I don't even want to use names because I'm not down on the names of these programs. I'm just saying if it's a program, it's not going to bear the correlative fruit. It's not going to tap into his power, possibly. It may not even be according to his word. It's going to be something you do, not someone you are, as the natural expression of being connected to a vine, and the result is it bears fruit. So if you separate them, uh, there is trouble. That's the fourth knuckle. The fourth knuckle is life is mission. you got to go through the second knuckle to get to the third. It could be simultaneous, or it may be decades, or you may never get there. A person, not you, right? Born again. Oh, I want to know you. I want to know you. Oops, it's not about me. It's about others. Life is mission. Life is mission. This is the fourth knuckle is the minimum expectation of a learner. 
It's not for the elite, not for the specialists, not for those who are very serious. The fourth knuckle is the target. It's the only target. Every other is a place along the way of that target. And to see otherwise is going to be unbiblical. And he didn't die for that. He died to reproduce and multiply his kind. He said, go and do likewise. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ to death, in his case, literally, for the sake of the kingdom. And to make sure, Timothy, that you entrust reliable men to teach others also, because the fabric from the very beginning in Genesis was to be fruitful and multiply, not just the seed of humans, but spiritual seed for eternity. It's the message from the beginning. It's the message from the end. The whole way through, he died to create the power and capacity to fulfill the mission, which was to go make disciples, of which evangelizing is completely embedded within and not separated from. Parable of the seeds. Uh, My sense is we don't have a deep understanding of that. Otherwise, we wouldn't emphasize evangelism so much and discipleship so little or not at all. Because the parable seeds are of four seeds. True conversions at the moment of conversion. Meaning all uh, indications are that first seed that was snatched by Satan shortly after being sown was a legitimate conversion. Have you ever had that happen? I mean, the Barna stats say, if we just want human stats, that out of every hundred that confess, only five are following, I don't know if it's a month or a week or a year later. Who cares? It's a horrible statistic that that seed got, that 95 seeds somehow within that spectrum of time got snatched is unbelievable. Frankly, it's on the body for that because the seeds hadn't been taken care of, nurtured. One plants, one waters, God makes it grow. We never watered, nurtured, nor protected or provided those seeds. We threw them a book and invited them to a deal and spent no time with them relationally to establish a chance that they could stay actually connected to the vine, especially with what they've been through in their life. God knows the stories increasingly of the abuse and the torment and the bondage. And somebody's supposed to hang onto that thin rope with the power of darkness tormenting them and their own flesh not broken yet and the powers of the world and the culture. And we expect a convert who shows up at a building or goes to a crusade or gets excited at a rally to be a walking, mature, reproducing Jesus follower for life? (laughs) That's insanity. You'd never do that with your own birth kids. We'd We'd never do a week with our birth kids what we do with spiritual seed that are going to live somewhere eternally, either heaven or hell. Can you imagine birthing a kid and leaving them on the curve or leaving them at the hospital and just going home? or wishing him well, or give him a little book, give him a book to make sure you can learn how to walk with God, you little infant, who's going to die if somebody doesn't feed you and wipe your butt within the next hours? It's insanity. And we're getting what we deserve, which should be grievous and cause us to fear God. First one is snatched. The second one doesn't have any roots. It falls away. The second seed falls away. It was in and it fell away. Those are people who appear to convert and last for a day, week, month, year, longer than that, and fall away. It appears clearly from the scriptures that those two guys are going to hell. Those two guys are going to hell forever. True conversions for a moment or a window of time. The third seed. The third seed gets choked by the pressures of the world. 
He gets choked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life John talks about. He's choked. He bears no fruit. He didn't die so that we get saved and don't bear fruit. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about putting on the uh, building with a foundation, wood, hay, stubble, precious stones. One gets burned away and you're saved as one snatched by the fire. That's the third seed. This is not a win. It's not a win to be in the kingdom snatched by barely getting in with no fruit when he commanded us to bear fruit and gave us everything we need to do so. Three seeds out of four are in bad spots. Two super bad. Third one, not good at all. Certainly not obedient. Fourth seed is the only one that bears fruit 30, 60, 100 full. Only one seed out of the four. We exalt evangelism as if it's the nirvana, and we have zero concern of the parable of the seeds, nor any plan to make sure that three doesn't happen, let alone two, let alone one. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. There's no parenting plan in the local church for the protection of the provision of a new believer with an actual human being responsible for them. It's one thing to be available, and it's another thing to be responsible. Being available is a neat thing. Brent, let me know if you need anything. Sounds good, but not going to be very helpful when I'm not connected with him, don't know what's going on in his life on a day-by-day basis. If he is tormented, he probably gets driven into isolation and is not going to give me a call. And frankly, if he does give me a call, I probably don't want to have to spend the time that it's going to take to take him out of the hole because it's going to cost me because I'm a second-knuckle guy or a third-knuckle guy, and it's inconvenient to parent somebody who's not your own birthed kid. And unless you have a vision of that, unless you understand you're a steward of all believers and those that are in your circles, you have a responsibility for. That's my alarm, sorry. That just tells me we're taking a break. That does not mean we're taking a break. That means we're taking a break from this particular conversation. I'm belaboring the point to say the parable of the four seeds, the body of Christ in America needs to fear God about. Because they honor, understandably, baptisms and conversions and have no plan of responsibility for a child of the faith who converts or comes into their circle without any parent would desire some and we don't have a plan for either parenting them or making sure they get parented. If we saw a baby on the curb when we drove out of the church right now, would anybody stop? Would anybody stop and care for them? Would anybody just look at it and say, that is, oh man, he was born, wonder where his parents are, right? Maybe we should do something. Let's call the police or whatever. Odds are most people that are here today would make sure at some point we give it to somebody that we have some sense is going to take responsibility for them. It might be the police but we probably won't feel good until we know that somehow that baby is going to be cared for at some level before I move on to go to my next deal. Is that fair? Is that fair? Not, that's not even the minimal way we approach believers in the church, new believers, let alone those that come in that have never been parented. They might be 61 years old. They may be 37. They've never been parented. They're brand new, converted. They're adult and mature in every way and have a life and yada, 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 but they're still a baby. They're still a baby. They still are at risk for a block of many months 
they're at flagrant risk to the parable of the, of the seeds. Do we have a plan? Let me take a break from this conversation. Um, I want to talk about prayer briefly, um, but concertedly. My opinion observation as a Christian leader is that uh, the body of Christ has no, um, no grasp of practically committing to the kind of prayer that's going to put a den in the darkness or allow for moves of God that they desire, if that makes sense. The kind of praying that actually provides and protects, meaning I think, this is my opinion, I think that there's a supernatural assault to stop Jesus' confessors from praying like Jesus prayed, which is long and hard. We call it long praying. We use long praying as a, as a we're not trying to make a doctrinal position out of it, but we're trying to make a point to say that when Jesus was in Gethsemane with the 12, and he said, wait here, wait here, I'm going over there. And he came back twice, and he, he ended up saying to them, couldn't, couldn't you pray an hour? Couldn't you pray? As if, now we're not saying an hour is magic, but it's fascinating. They said, couldn't you pray an hour? Not couldn't you pray like, like we do in America. We, I pray all day long. I pray throughout the day. I pray when things come up. When somebody says to me they pray throughout the day, that's their prayer plan, I say, they don't pray. They don't really pray. They probably pray about anything that crosses their path that has to do with their personal story, about something that was, and they may have something that happened in the world or somewhere, but they pray correlative to it affecting them and not affecting the kingdom necessarily. We would say this, until you pray for people you don't know and will never meet, you're really not praying because God's heart is the world and our heart is our turf. And that's a problem. He didn't die for us to take care of our turf only, our little church, our little community, our little state, our little country. He didn't die for that. He died for the world and commanded us to go into all nations with our feet or our mouth. And if we don't have a plan to pray long, whatever that is, long together, Bible principles, two or three gathered. It doesn't mean when one prays, one can put the fight a thousand, but when two or three gathered in his name, something happens more and different. There's something happens more and different when people pray together on a regular basis for his missions, for the world. I don't observe that churches or Jesus leaders have a plan in their own life to pray long on any regular basis with other people. I don't even know a church staff that commits to pray long, regularly, for their own turf, like an hour or more regularly. I'm going to read something. So when I was on staff at this church, and this is this is just this is just my opinion. My opinion. You don't need to heed it. You don't need to consider it. I'm just going to read something that I proposed to our church in 2010 after being there one month. It's a mega church, thousands of people. In its area, which is a million within a 15-mile radius, uh, it has the most impact in terms of visible service. It was a heart that served the community, and the head pastor was kind of the bishop of this area of a million people. Here's what I said. 
Though there's a remnant of corporate prayers at our church, in general, there's a lack of long praying in our church community, both in the leadership and in the church body. Point number two, our church committee talks about prayer, how we want to pray and how much we need prayer. However, we do not long pray in correlative to how much we believe God wills us to pray. I, I, I was telling the brothers last night, I said, anybody I've ever asked of how they feel about their prayer life, they say, I probably should pray what? More. Everybody wants to pray more, but nobody has a plan to do it. Everybody knows, everybody feels this conviction to pray more, but nobody takes that conviction and actually has a plan. And if you don't have a plan, you're going to plan on failing. Three, we don't have a church culture of corporate prayer and thus must take the action necessary to create a culture of corporate prayer in the leadership in order to encourage the flock to pray corporately. Four, through all the churches responsible, transformational corporate prayer must begin with the leadership community, the pastoral staff. Five, until corporate prayer occurs in the church leadership as a want to, we recommend that corporate prayer be a have-to, mandatorily with pastoral staff and others within the regular responsibility of the church. Number six, until the culture of the corporate prayer is established, we recommend one of the following four choices, mandatory with the leadership. For the staff, pastors and other people associated, whoever, lay people, whatever. Monthly day of prayer, eight-hour block committed to corporate prayer. Every month, take a day set aside to pray. Four, weekly four-hour block. Take Every week, take a four-hour block. It's got to be costly. David said, I'm not going to give God something that doesn't cost me. We wait to have time. Nobody has time to pray. You make time. And if you don't make time, you won't. Regularly do it in a committed corporate way. Number three, daily one-hour block committed to corporate prayer. Advocate is every day, unless you're on vacation, we got a time that you're going to be in the prayer room together. We're going to boldly mess our whole schedules up by having that be the first thing between 8 and 5, not the first thing necessarily to start the day, but it's the one thing that first goes in the planner when we're at work as church leaders to make sure that we don't err on busyness and hoping God moves because we're doing good stuff. I don't think Satan's very intimidated by good stuff. I would contend that he is freaked out when people pray long and hard with passion. I can biblically support that with tens and tens of verses. And I don't doubt that anybody here disagrees. And the fact is, what will we do personally and corporately as a body? My contention is the kind of discipleship that we're talking about is not going to happen without an infusion of prayer far more than we currently have on our radar. Because this stuff will take over the world. What Jesus planned with the 12, actual multiplication and not talk of multiplication, will take over the world. Because the math says that addition and measurables does virtually nothing in reaching the world. But multiplication within a generation will reach the world. That's what the math says. So I'm going to take some time to go over some of this stuff here just as as an FYI. This is the math. If I meet with Brent in year one, and I meet with Johnny in year two, and I meet with Billy in year three. After 30 years, if I do a good job, I got 30 guys that are following Jesus. Is that good? Absolutely, that's good. That's great. I suspect most people in the church, even decade-long followers, can't say they've walked with anybody for any length of time continuously for their maturation's sake. Does that make sense? That'd be minimal discipleship. Most people don't disciple because they weren't discipled. 
Most people don't even mentor. I'll talk about the difference possibly of what we would say mentoring discipleship is because it hasn't happened to them. How do you reproduce what you've not seen or heard? You can't. This is the math. If I meet with one guy a year in 30 years, I have 31 people if they all stay in the faith. And if I walk with them and we stay in the same locale, the odds are better that they will than not. However, if I meet with Brent in year one and I meet with Billy in year two and Brent, I walk with him and he knows and practices and I supervise him while he walks with Johnny and I walk with Tony and the next year he walks with another guy and the guy he walked with, if I walk with the same one guy each year and walk with him in such a way that they know and practice walking with another one, and you can do more than one, but if you just walk with one, and make sure they walk with one as you walk with a new one and the next year a new one. In the same 30-year span, you touch a billion people. The same one person that you walk with in such a way that he knows and practices while he's with you, walking with another. And you do that. You do the right thing the right way and stay at it. You touch a billion people. In 33 years, you touch 8 billion. And that's more than living the world. So in our generation, almost regardless of our age, we reach the world by taking care of one person a year well and teach them to do likewise. We don't hope he does likewise. I don't want him to do likewise. I make him do likewise. So Brent knows if we're going to enter into a discipleship relationship, we're going to walk together and I'm going to give you my life for this season. Whatever it is, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, or indefinite, I'm going to give you my life, and you immediately, within the first month, literally, are going to begin walking with somebody else in such a way that they know they're going to walk with somebody else, and I'm going to have a son and a grandson and a great-grandson if I stay in the community within a block of months, no question, everybody practicing parenting under supervision to make sure that the seed sticks. The seed sticks. It's not a short barrel. If I had a pistol and I want to hit the gal in the back who's helping with the earpiece, the chances from 40 feet here are small. This handgun's going to hit her where I want to hit her. But if I had a, if I had a sniper rifle, I can hit a guy at a mile right in the head is what the military tells me. If you don't have a long barrel on your gun for discipleship, you're going to spray a bunch of people and maybe never even hit the target. If it's not long, that's time. There's no substitute for a quantity of time. In America, we spend 18 years with this physical birth. 18 years before we even consider them leaving the nest. And then they're in this four-year usually. In America, if they go to college, they're the four-year window where they're kind of with us, but kind of not with us. And then we send them off. That's a 22-year actual year commitment for a single human. In fact, my six-year, my six-year-old, we probably won't let her stay at home alone, even if we go to the store for maybe 13 years. 13 years, we don't let her out of our sight. I and my wife, she just called me while I was in here. I and my wife know where she is every moment of every day for years. Can you imagine the maturity of the body of Christ if that was our commitment to converts? Or those that are young in the faith, which frankly is often the majority of our churches. And they're often not people we birthed. I rarely work with people that I led to the Lord. I generally adopt orphans because nobody's been parented. And they're all out there not practicing habits because nobody walked with them to even show the what and the why and the how. And we ask them to go move eternity. And somehow move from the second knuckle to the third. It's insanity. It's insanity. Here's addition. 
Here's where the body of Christ is satisfied if they even have a plan. Their plan is small groups. Their plan is life groups. Their plan is investing in another, which is good. So there's 10 of us. There's hypothetical models, right? There's 10 of us. That's a table. We're around the table, and, and I'm the leader, and Brent is the guy that I'm training that after a window of time, depending on how much I want to empower him or how much I control him, I'm going to flesh him out, and he's going to have his own group. He may take some of the guys from my group, or we may wait till we bring, and he's going to end up having, he's going to become the leader of this group. That means after this block of time, let's say a year, there's 20 folks. There's 20 folks after. If you knew your small group grew from 10 to 20 in a year, I would think most people would feel like that's pretty good growth. That's called addition. Addition is like wiener ball, and hopefully I can communicate that here. If, however, I view it in terms of reproducing, reproducers who multiply, then each one of those 10 that I'm investing in understands and observes, and I walk with them and they walk with me as they begin to bring their own discipleship community, their family, their spiritual family together. And each one of them in the same year walks not only with me, but under supervision where they're walking with somebody else. So Brent, who's a youth pastor in Myrtle Beach, his guys in his quiver right now that are guys that he's interacting with, some the same age, some probably older, some probably younger. He's developing his family and he's teaching them how to go and do likewise as he walks with them. And so after one year multiplication, his 10 becomes 100. Which 10 to 100 is a lot different. I had 10 bucks or 100 bucks, I'd feel a lot better. If I find 10 on the street, I'd say, that's cool. If I find 100, i feel like, big day, big day, right? Is that fair? If I'm looking at addition, I'm saying, man, this is slow. I'm, I'm investing in these people. I mean, you're, I mean, three years I've spent. Three years I've spent with those guys. And there's only eight of us now. See, but you don't understand the math. The math doesn't lie. Math is math. Any country in the world, one plus one is two, and seven minus two is five. Everywhere in the world. The math does not lie. If you reproduce, reproducers who reproduce, it becomes multiplication. We throw the word multiplication around like it's candy. Everybody's talking about multiply, multiply, multiply. We don't even invest in an intentional, that means on purpose, strategic, that means having planned. We don't even invest in people in an intentional, strategic way in our immediate circle, let alone make sure that they have kids now or adopt kids immediately. Because I promise you there's a lot of folks out there that are looking for parenting that don't have anybody to parent. They don't even know it's possible to have a spiritual parent because we don't even have conversations about that so they understand. Because everywhere we go when we say who would like somebody to walk with them as they attempt to work out their salvation. So when we teach this stuff, I'll use a baseball metaphor. There's a great player named Derek Jeter. He's just a, he may not be a baseball guy, but he's LeBron James. Let's say most people probably have heard of that guy. So if you want to be a great basketball player, you could read books on basketball. You could watch basketball games. You can get teaching videos. You can actually go to a game in person instead of on TV. You could talk to somebody who's played or coached at one day in high school, or LeBron James will personally mentor you day by day for a block of months. Which would you choose if you want to be a great basketball player? If you had the choice, right, it's an insane example. Because who in their right mind would choose hanging out at the gym, watching it on TV, and maybe looking at a teaching video if they wanted to be great? When LeBron James is there asking them if he can develop them. Is that right? 
That's discipleship in the local church. We give them a book. We give them a video. We invite them to a deal. We ask them to hang out in the local orphanage on Sunday, which is the local church building. And we expect them to be productive players in the game of life, spiritually. Do we even have LeBron James, somebody who's walked with God? At all, right? We say this, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. The land of the blind. If you got one eye and you're in a place that everybody's blind, you're the king of that area. You may be limited. You may be disabled in your walk, meaning you're stumbling, struggling, flawed, aren't we all? But you've been there one day longer than them, which means you can take them somewhere they haven't gone. It's part of the thing we got to break, the lies we have to break that I can't do that. Sure, you can do that. You do that in every other area of your life every day. I work at McDonald's, right? If I'm flipping burgers and I'm doing it for a week and a new hire gets hired, even though I've only been a one-week burger flipper at McDonald's, when a new kid comes up, some 16-year-old, they give them to me to teach them. Even though I'm a one-week old and all I do is flip burgers, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You are king to that person because he doesn't even know where the on-off button is on the burger machine and you can not only turn it on but help him flip the burger so it actually pleases the manager which helps you keep your job. That would be an advantage. It'd be an advantage to have supervision even in the inception stages with somebody who isn't even experienced because he's been somewhere at least a day longer than you have. That's why everybody can disciple and needs to disciple because the teacher learns more than the student. So if all we want to be is students once a week at a building for an hour and a half, that would be not smart if the goal is to reach the world with mature believers who have been sured by the process. This is a visual here. So if this is you or me, and I'm walking with three guys, and they're walking with three guys who walk with three guys, then within the cycle, if I stay in Myrtle Beach and Brent and I were working together, within a year, he would be my son, I'd have other sons, he would have sons, his sons would have other sons, and we would start the math going in Myrtle Beach to reach the world. And you would too. You would. Because some of those guys, your sons, your grandsons, your great-grandsons or granddaughters, etc., one of those is going to go on a short-term mission trip. Somebody's going on a little bit longer mission trip, and one of those is going to move there. One's going to be a life for missionary there at some point. You're going to reach them with your mouth because you're praying, and you're going to reach them with your feet because you're sending. You may not go, but your, your sons or grandsons or granddaughters will go. They will go because it's God's will. And if they keep walking with God and walking with people, they're going to hear from God to do the works of the kingdom with their mouth and with their feet. Short or long term. That's what these things say. Circles. People then think, who can I disciple? Who can I? People are brain locked to think about who they can give their life away to. So we use something called circles diagram. I can give you all this stuff you want. I'm just showing it up here. Circles diagram are just, what are you, who are the people you know in your circles who are unsaved? They're now evangelism prospects for prayer. Who are the people that are saved in your community that you think don't know God much or don't have any growth or would want maybe or you know you could serve them in some way? So we say, who's in your church circles? Who's people? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us who's in your church circle, somebody out there, some man for men and woman for women, who's out there that we could say, get together and say, hey, would you like to meet regularly just to, to talk a little bit, pray a little bit? Here's Dr. Coleman right here. Talk a little bit, pray a little bit, walk a little bit together. Is there somebody in your church circle, whether your church has 50 or 5, is there a human in there? I mean, I, I've been on staff. We could, we could pick hundreds of people that we'd say, it'd be nice if they had a spiritual parent. 
It'd be nice if somebody could walk with them a little bit because they're in trauma or they're a baby or they're older and they've been to church a long time, but they really want to grow, but they don't know how. Is there somebody willing to give to them? The problem I've found in churches is not generating something that creates a need. It's finding people who are willing to give their life because they're not used to it. They're not used to it because they're stuck in the second knuckle. They know stuff. They've been to Bible studies there in BSF. They got knowledge up the yin-yang. Practicing, that's a whole nother organism. Practicing actually the minimum commandments of God to go make disciples is not even in the radar. And yet they have knowledge to fill up a bank. Not giving it away. Here's another metaphor we use just to say here's a problem. Here's what happens. People worship the concept, if they're in small groups or that stuff like that, that they're together. We've met together for years. We're so close and intimate. We sh- Good for you. Nuts for everybody else. Nuts for everybody else, all those guys that are growing in intimacy and knowledge as they don't reach out to others. Good for you and nuts to everybody else. That's the second knuckle. This is the Jordan River. It's been feeding people for thousands, thousands of years. Still is, I reckon. It's the Jordan River also. This is called the Sea of Galilee. This is called the Dead Sea. This sea is alive. It's alive. It's fed people for thousands of years. To this day, they fish it. This sea is dead. It's deader than dead. It's minerals. You can't drink it. The salt would make you throw up. It's dead. You know the difference? The same Jordan life-given river flows into one place. One of them, the water flows out. The other one, it doesn't. If you keep drinking of the water of life and you don't give it away, you don't even know it and you're dead. You're deader than dead. You stink like the Dead Sea stinks. Because you're religious with knowledge, with no obedience, which means there's no life. But if you travel in a community for no life, you all smell the same. It's a harsh way to say it. But at some point, have the courage to be honest to say, am I giving my life away? Do I even want to? Address the questions. Repent. Find somebody who, I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you. Find somebody who'll walk with you to take you where you haven't been. So you can experience the fruit and the power that he ordained for everybody that only comes to those who are obedient. It's part of the message of this place. The obedient fuck. I can't remember that mantra Shadante talked about. Obedient, what was it? Discipleship. There were four words yesterday. Something about they're trying to emphasize that discipleship is, is obedience. Is you have to walk obediently if you want the fruit and the power. Shadanke talked about it yesterday at length. This is... Christianity's not all it's cracked up to be unless you obey. When you obey, it's far more than you can ask or imagine. This is circles. Who are your interests? Who's in your life that are hobbies or things you love to do? You hang out with. Who are your relatives? You got some some lost relatives? They may be local. They may be distant. Who's in your community? Who do you know through the schools? Your children's schools, your schools, your college, your high school. You live in the same area. Groups. You may not have many in some of these circles, but you're going to have lots of folks in these circles. And these circles overlap. It's just a, it's an acronym circle to give you something that you can use as a grid to get your disciples and those you're attempting to impact to think deeply. Because if you ask them, who could you come alongside? They're brain locked. They can't even think of anybody. They just, partly I think it's a, I think it's a devilish scheme to keep them self-absorbed. But when we ask God to give us people, do you know what? He'll answer that request because it's God's will. Dawson Trotman talks about that in Born to Reproduce, uh, which is a booklet I'm going to show you here. You know, founder of the Navigators, discipleship patriarch in our country, right? 
He says, ask him for one. You can't, can't have two until you have one. Ask for one. Ask for one. If you have anybody that understands discipleship in your community, then they know people out there that have needs that would love somebody to come alongside with, to walk with them in an intentional, that means on purpose, strategic, that means have a plan, way. Right? That's what circles do. Life is neighbors, acquaintances, employment, or people at work. Here's a generational tree. Dr. Coleman's up there. I, I, I use generational trees to get people to think, to think about the possibilities this is me. That's Dr. Coleman. He came into my life when I was 30. Jeez, uh, was it 19? Probably 97. So I was 40 years old. I'd already read Master Plan. The Holy Spirit had flipped me already. I'd never been parented intentionally or strategically. I just grew up in the local orphanage. I was hungry, and thankfully I attempted to follow my hunger. I never had discipled. I'd never mentored. I'd never seen it, never done it, never heard about it articulated other than the discipleship is a general word to mean mature, whatever. I'm one guy out of a thousand. He's been doing 12 a semester for 60 years. 28-ish is when he started. Is that fair, Dr. Coleman? You start discipling like at 28 when you started seminary at Asbury as a prof? Okay, so he's 92. So you got multiple decades. I'm one of a thousand guys. I'm just, I just, I'm trying to give a, a grid Free to understand, if you just do the right thing the right way, the math doesn't lie. The Holy, the kingdom advances whether we're asleep or awake. Just do the right thing the right way and stay at it. Be connected to the vine, John 15, with the word of God and prayer. Walk with God, be with people, have a plan, have a plan, make sure it's a good plan, execute the plan. Boom! 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 The kingdom advances. It reaches the world through your mouth and your feet. Here's me, Ryan Busker, is the head of Young Life at Grand Canyon. He's got 300 kids he invests in. Cole Espencheet is an FCA rep in Illinois. He's got coaches and players he's working with. Randy Chambers is responsible for 440 athletes as the chaplain at Arizona Christian. Year-round, discipleship, four years of school. Uh, Jamie Anderson is a missionary in Macedonia, building a house of prayer there. DeQuinn is a new believer. Uh, former NFL player, giving his life away to other student athletes as he shares his craft with them because they want to be college and pro football players. He invests in them spiritually. Dave Collins went to Trinity Evangelical uh, International University where Dr. Como was at the uh, seminary there, pastor in Tucson. Fruit, 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 fruit. Things that lay at the master's feet, crowns to give to him for his glory by his power, according to his word. What's your plan? What's your plan? Prayer. I, I, I dive, I dive how, what time is it? Dag, nab it. Okay, we got to end. So let's pray. Um, I'm, I'm going to finish with the 30 seconds. Ephesians 6, the battle's not against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 10, we have weapons that are not of this world. Psalms 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Luke 10, pray for harvesters in the field. First Chronicles 4, pray that he would enlarge your territory for his glory, by his power, according to his word, not for you. I love this prayer. Last thing, Second Chronicles, God says to Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want, whatever you want. He says in humility, thankfully in that window's time, he was obedient. He obviously went sideways. He says, God, give me wisdom and knowledge to lead your people. For who is able to serve such a great people as yours? Give me wisdom and knowledge to disciple. Give me wisdom and knowledge to evangelize and disciple. God said, good job, Solomon. 
That's your, that's my heartbeat. Your heart is for my kids to become your kids because you're there face to face and I'm gone, but I gave you the spirit of God. Parent my children. Feel my pleasure. I will enlarge your territory for my namesake. And I'll give you else everything else on top of that. But even if he doesn't, if you feel the pleasure, when I look at these guys out there and I think about them in their mission fields bearing fruit, reaching guys, sending guys out, children, more children. If you're a parent that even is remotely healthy, is not your children, isn't that, doesn't that bring you joy? And when you have your children have children, what do you think about the grandkid? You can have grandkids in the faith tomorrow. It's all out there, the whole enchilada. It's more than you can ask or imagine. But if you don't follow the master's plan, it may not happen. We'll talk about more in the second hour if you want to stay. If not, thank you for coming. Lord, thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name, if you want to, Brent and I partnered on his stuff there. Uh, he was just like you. We talked afterwards. We've been Marco Poland in touch for a year. I came out there and worked with their people for three days. The, the kingdom is advancing through that little whole church and that little whole town in that little whole state. And it's reaching the world for the kingdom because it's the master's plan. Bless these people, Father. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them and make them a blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast by Discipleship.org. Make sure to check out the free resource called Revisiting the Master Plan of Evangelism, which is available for free download at Discipleship.org slash ebooks. May the Lord bless you as you seek to make disciples who make disciples, which has been the master's plan for us all along.